You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Impact Dynamics. And now, over to your hosts. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. My name is Rusty and this is episode number 121. Uh, joining us tonight for this special episode is uh, Dutchy sitting across from me. How are you, mate? I am very. I'm. I'm not Russian. I'm just just chilling. <laughs> You're trying to get me to play the song, eh? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, now that you're chilling, uh, Bronte, how are you, mate? Yeah, well, thanks and yourself, Rusty. Excellent, mate. Excellent. We missed you last uh, last time around. Yes, but, uh, but here you are, back yeah, again. Back make in the up flesh. For it. Wonderful. And joining us tonight. Now, this gentleman has appeared before, but uh, Paul Waiting, how are you, mate? Good, Rusty. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for uh, jumping on board. This, uh, we're talking about some topics that are very close to your heart tonight, to some degree. Uh, all right. Well, um, anyone been shooting? Anything exciting to report in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I went shooting on Sunday. Oh, yeah? So, Where'd you go? Uh, just down to the spot down near Mamponga there. So quite mm-hmm. a few good long-range opportunities there. So it was a bit of fun. So On game or targets? Uh, or a bit both? of both. Yeah. A bit of both. So got a... Yeah, you know, targets out to a bit past, I think, 1450 Nice. So that was a bit of fun. Brilliant. And then soft targets at some, you know, reasonable distances as well. Yeah, so. cool. Oh, good stuff, mate. Oh, any shooting? No? This weekend, mate. I've been for three months. Yeah. So it's coming. It's going to be messy. <laughs> good. Yeah, we are going shooting this weekend with the club. Uh, club match on this weekend, which should be uh, should be good fun. I'm meant to be the match director for the center fire, and then I'm meant to be very slowly shooting parts of the the rim fire match on the Sunday. Yeah, right. Any uh, tips for the center fire match? For yeah, a... hit the targets, mate. Hit the mm. targets. Yeah, I might have to work on that one then. <laughs> We're dropping the bombs tonight. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good. So. Um, the, the weekend just gone was the Night Force heat stroke. Um, now, I fortunately couldn't travel, so I couldn't get up there. Do you guys see any of the Facebook posts or photos or anything from that? No, I didn't pay much attention. Too busy shooting, I guess, Bronte. Yeah. I was, I was basically at home crying. This is the first PRS I've missed in Australia. So it was a, an emotional weekend for me. Call yourself a director. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Very rarely. But anyway, only if I have to. Don't you have some sort of like cutout thing that says match director on it? Like, um, maybe I don't know. <laughs> do you looking around? Oh yeah, for particular uh, particular matches. Yeah. Yeah. So you do call yourself director. You've, you've got things for, in your in your room saying, "Yeah, I am match director." <laughs> not Re- for the heat strike open. My, uh, yeah, please see my trophy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not for the heat strike open. I uh, I have not. Uh, that's left in the capable hands of Butters, uh, who by all accounts ran a very uh, good and interesting course of fire, which is good. So that was uh, that went well. Congratulations to Luke uh, for winning that one. That's uh, three from four this year. Um, and also to Andy McNeil, who came second, which I think is his first podium this year. Yeah, and um, Maybe it was yeah, Pete. Oh, Ash was third. Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking I I spent more time looking at the series results um, because I did them straight after the match while, while they were to – well, they're probably still having some drinks at the club. So I was uh, paying attention to the series results. And and that's right, Ash was third in, uh, in overall. And, uh, yeah. The, uh, the series is looking interesting because Andy ended up into third in the series um, with Butters in fourth. So it's uh, it's getting interesting. There's two matches left. And uh, the next match, which is the Ignition Custom Winter Classic, uh, went up for sale for the uh, the members. 
and was full in 80 minutes. That's pretty quick. Is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's, that's, re- <laughs> <laughs> that's real quick. That's um, a bucking, isn't it? Sorry? That's going to be a, is it a bucking, yeah. that one? Yeah, yeah okay. bucking. Yeah. Um, that's uh, 80, 80 minutes. The, the closest, uh, the fastest that's ever sold before, which was the bucking event the year previous, was about 10 hours. Which yeah, is still okay. really quick. <laughs> There's a few less shooters at that event. Yeah, that's there. right. That, yeah. And that's the, the reason for it. It's Victorian match, and the Victorian match is obviously sort of the, where the majority of shooters now are um, because that's where the history of the PRS has really sort of kicked off. And um, and so that that's you know, fairly heavy with, uh, with the PRS shooters there and only 42 into that match. So, um, yeah, it didn't make its public release and it barely made its members release. So uh, hopefully we've got one, one more match, I guess, available for the, the rest of the year, which is the, the Battle of Biggerton from Huntsman Oz. Uh, so that is, uh, that is uh, probably one to jump into if you are thinking about it, particularly if you're up in Queensland because uh, this will be the first time we've done it in Queensland. So it's good to see it get up over there. Uh, we have our own match uh, for our club, um, which is the uh, Steel Slam that's happening in September. So I'm guessing some of you guys are going to shoot that. Won't be shooting. I think I'll be probably ROing again. Well, all the ROs are shooters this time around, so that means you're shooting, I guess. Oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You can keep me company at the bottom pool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Bronnie. You do all right, mate. You do all right. As long as your gun doesn't break down, you generally do... Do not As I said, I'll keep me coming down at the bottom because it's guaranteed mm. to break down. <laughs> well, this is a this is a one day match, a little bit different. Um, this is like you know we normally run like a four no six stage sort of half day, or a couple of hours really uh, low key. This is going to be a, a nine stage uh, sort of fairly uh, yeah sort of between a PRS match and and a and a general club match. A really good stepping stone for those guys who are looking to shoot the bigger matches but are not. Not perhaps experienced and want to want to get some of that intimidation out of the way. It's going to be a good opportunity to do it. Um, Ash prizes, nice, which is, uh, which is something we don't see too often. So that will be uh, that will be good fun. Um, yeah, I've got some some ideas for some of those stages. There should be some really uh, interesting, um, unique sort of stuff that we haven't seen at too many matches before, uh, for a couple of them at least. The other thing with that match, that match is actually going to kick off. The state of origin rivalry between SA and Victoria. Bronte's just perked up. This is uh, this is going to be this is something we've been talking about for a few uh, for a little while. Actually, probably almost since we uh, we got wind that there some might be something happening in Victoria. And so the idea behind that is that the the match will run as an individual match and it'll be just as it as it normally would. But then the top probably four from SA and the top four from Victoria. Those scores will be tallied, and then the trophy will go to whichever of the, the clubs uh, has won that particular match. With then the intention that next year Victoria and SA will host a match each, and uh, you know we'll see whether that trophy moves over the course of the year or remains in whatever state it started in. So just to add another little dimension, that won't be the the focus of the match. So you know one of those things if you're in Adelaide and you want to get along to shoot it, uh, get along to shoot it because. Unless you do really well, um, your score won't affect the state of origin side of things. And if it does affect it, well, happy days. It's either really good or there wasn't very many great shooters, depending on your skill level, really. Greatness (laughs) is a relative. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. So anyway, that's the Steel Slam uh, at um, Practical Shooting SA, uh, which is our home club at Monado. Uh, that's on the 14th of September. So interstaters, even if you're not from Victoria, you're welcome. In fact, if you're from Victoria, not really welcome. So how does that work though? You know, if, can we have ring-ins? Like, you know, there's a few guys in Queensland that we know can shoot. There's a couple guys, there's one guy in Darwin that sort of shoots. Uh, <laughs> that that we... one guy in Darwin should be banned. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly for his hair. Um, so clarity around that. Um, I believe there hasn't been the firm rule locked in yet, but it's going to be something along the lines of where your firearms license is. The state of your uh, firearms being registered to. Uh, either that or to go on the birth certificates and, uh, you know, who knows who was born where would start pulling all those details oh, out. Uh, there'd be some controversy. <laughs> Dual citizenships. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. Bring back the politics yeah. days. Well, could, you, could, you, could you be born in two states? What if you were born right. in the dead centre of the River Murray? What if you want? Which part? Between uh, Victoria and, oh, I was at the Darling, between Victoria and New South Wales, for example. I think you've probably other, got other complications in life than a shooting match if you're born inside a river, in the dead centre of a they, river. They do have things called boats. Yeah. On top you of said it. in the river though. Oh, water birth. <laughs> in the Murray. That's, <laughs> that's like, not a water birth. We, we use the term water loosely when we describe the Murray. <laughs> that's not a water birth. That's a water accident. <laughs> wow. Once <laughs> right. again, it's all relative. So good. We'll, we'll, we'll move on from that. Uh, something around firearms license most likely. So uh, anyway, get along to it. It should be really good fun. And uh, I think a few of us will be there. Andy's uh, definitely shooting it, I believe. So uh, we'll be, uh, be able to give him some One, one easy beat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and Dutchie's beating and shooting it. So that's two. <laughs> mm. All right. It's never lonely at the bottom. That's right. <laughs> We're pretty crowded at that bottom end. <laughs> it's, a, it's a race to the bottom. It's like golf. <laughs> Lower score wins, eh? It's, uh, we could go with that. Uh, good. So, should that be an interesting concept? We just count the misses. I'm actually thinking I'd probably win. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I was like, oh, I'm, a, oh, I'm in for a shot on this one. Yeah, geez. <laughs> I don't think you're too keen to dismiss that idea. Actually. All I've got to do <laughs> is have enough rounds to come out in the end. So I'm just thinking that the actual optimum rifle choice for that would be something like a pump action with a large magazine capacity because then you can get in, those rounds off really quickly. In 22. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hey, no. 30 round tube mag or something. Probably it sounds good. have those anymore. Probably not. No, no, definitely not. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, all right. So um, last uh, episodes, we uh, announced a uh, bit of a special on some M31 uh, ear more earmuffs. And um, through to some technical complications, the uh, discount codes didn't work, which is uh, disappointing because it was meant to end today, the time of recording. So we've, uh, we've thrown an extra month onto it. And thanks to Andrew Sargent, who uh, let me know about that. Those codes now do work, and he has uh, put through an order making sure they did work. And uh, so the code EARLESS, thanks to Dutchy, I think he came up with that one, uh, does now, he doesn't remember what happened yesterday. So uh, that now will take $10 off the uh, Earmore M31 earmuffs uh, from Scoped Out or Projectile Warehouse. So go and check that out. For those who are on Facebook, which is not everyone in the room, but for those who are silly enough to sign up and sign all their privacy away, um, on Facebook, uh, we have started a new group uh, on Facebook, which is the Precision Rifle Australia. I don't know if you guys have seen that at all um, or checked it out, but anyway, the the 
The idea came because there, I mean, there's plenty of good groups on Facebook and there's plenty of other groups on Facebook as well. And the PRS members have a Facebook page, which is locked down. You know, you have to be a member to be, to get in. And the reason for that is because, you know, the passwords for um, early entry and all those sort of details are put up there. And it's, you know, there's that, that ability to be able to share stuff within the members about, you know, going to matches and accommodation or bits and pieces uh, that, that are reasons that that is uh, locked down. But we usually probably get two, three, maybe four people a day trying to join the, the, the group, which is wonderful because it shows that there's a real significant interest in the sport. And I, I hate the idea of like knocking all those guys back, but of course it has to exist for a particular purpose. We got the same with the club. We've got a members group for the club and, you know, you can talk about the meetings and the committee meetings and all those sort of, you know, the, the boring mundane things, but really only gets extended to that. So, uh, after, uh, after actually taking a few requests, some guys like, oh, what group should I join to, to ask questions about this stuff? You're like, I'm not sure. No, oh, well. I guess we'll rally up a few guys and start one. So we did. So Precision Rifle Australia uh, is on Facebook. So um, jump in there and the there's there's a bunch of top-level comp shooters in there from Australia and also from around the world. Uh, and so, you know, uh, and it's fairly closely watched as well. So the information that you should receive on that page is uh, fairly monitored uh, with uh, some, some posts and bits and pieces being removed or challenged or whatever, um, just to keep the content appropriate. So you don't ask the question of what gun should I buy and then get all the, um, all the responses that are from people who haven't been in the situation they plan to use that gun in. Yeah. If you're asking what gun should I buy for this type of competition, you want the people who shoot that competition to advise it to you, not people who have watched that competition. And so that's where, you know, it's fairly closely monitored. But the, the, the offset of that is that the information you get should be fairly good. So, and, and particularly from some of the guys it comes from, it's, yeah, they know because they've been there and done it. So anyway, I thought I'd mention that to our listeners as well. So uh, jump on in there and say you heard it because you have to say where, how you found out about the group. So say it was a podcast and we'll definitely reject you. I mean, let you in uh, for sure. I thought that was a huge introduction for the Stonecutters. It was. It was. That's the next part. I'm like, who rigs every Oscar night? <laughs> we do. Black we dog, do. we have a wiener. Good job. I've got to drop a Simpsons reference yeah, in there every time. Episode. It's good. Brilliant. Uh, all right. Dutchie, how's your uh, stock project going, mate? Any updates on that? Cutting the cheek piece out was your last one. Yeah, that hasn't pro- uh, progressed any further, but no. I did um, re-blue the barrel in action. Oh, we're getting closer then. Yes, we are. Yeah. What did you use to re-blue it? Uh... Uh, what was that? Birchwood, Birchwood Casey? Is that the name? Yep. Yeah, something like that. Is that the cold blue? Like you paint it on cold? Yeah, the, yeah. The paste. The paste. Or yeah, yeah paste, used yeah, the paste in it. Yep. The instructions yeah. were very limited. Um, <laughs> I felt like it wasn't working for the first few applications. Right. And then it started, like colour started to come out. And I'm like, well, didn't say it would take this long. Mm. Also, it probably didn't say it wouldn't. It also didn't say it wouldn't, <laughs> so I just kept going, and it, it looks quite nice actually. Oh, it's, it's come good. up, come up a treat. Lovely, good, good. No, well, that's what you want. That's. Uh, but yeah, having never blued a rifle before, I thought maybe one application I'd start to see some colour. Mm-hmm. That's not an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, and there was like very little. There's more discoloration, I'd say. Yeah, okay. And then yeah. no, by fourth or fifth, um, 
application of it's come up re- really nice. Yeah, nice. I'm very happy with it. So yeah, that's what I've what I've been doing on that uh, that Get project. Yeah, and uh, what else did I do? There was something else. Um, oh, I've been modifying the magazines so that they feed properly because I've got two aftermarket magazines for a fifty year old rifle and they don't quite feed because mm-hmm. they're they sit too low. Yep. So I've been uh, messing around with the. Just remind our listeners what, what gun it is. Uh, it's for those who've just joined us, they'll be like, "What, what is he talking about?" Uh, it's a Creco Twenty Two, which mm. is um, a company that's actually called Kriegscourt and Co. Stuttgart, made in Germany. Okay. Uh, it's about fifty years old, the rifle, and mm. it does shoot very accurately. But it had some crimes against gunsmithing committed against it, <laughs> and I'm seeking to rectify that. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm a fair way into the project and yeah, just sort of finishing up a lot of the cosmetic things at the moment. But yeah, like I mentioned uh, a few episodes ago, I have made an attempt at putting an adjustable cheek piece on. I uh, haven't, haven't really progressed any further with that, but we're getting mm. there. Okay. Good. Good. Well, uh, YouTube channel is keeping updated. So our, our YouTube channel is actually in line with our actual podcast stream, which is uh, nice to uh, to have. So uh, if you do, if you are listening to us on YouTube, uh, welcome aboard. We actually are growing a little collection of followers on there as well. I did actually have a question on one of the um, from from not on YouTube, but on one of the podcast apps, uh, asking that if we removed the laughter out of our episodes, how long the actual content would be of an hour episode. I estimated about three minutes twenty. Um, mm. Seems about right. Probably a bit conservative. Conservative, yeah, two two fifty or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll maybe one day we'll, we we should release like the express version of the episode and then the actual version. The express is just the information that's useful. Won't take long to edit that. Uh, you mean just the intro? <laughs> all aspects, mate. Yeah. All aspects. Just aspects. All aspects. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, tonight's main topic uh, is one we be asked a huge amount, and uh, it's a one that there is lots of uh, information about. Not all of it right, uh, not all of it wrong, and sometimes hard to decipher. So we're going to give it a, our, our best go. Now, one of the reasons that we uh, that we have. Uh, Paul, particularly in here, is uh, Paul was actually the uh, the founder of Scoped Out. Uh, so he uh, has spent many years knowing scopes, selling scopes, talking about scopes, and uh, so it's good to have him along. Dutchy uh, built scopes for a while, and um, Bronte breaks scopes. So uh, we we figured between the three of us, four of us, um, not good with numbers, we can probably uh, come together with a few answers on a few things. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to break up into section one is going to be about sort of clarification of some some parts of scopes and so maybe look, there's a few scopes behind your Dutchie, but we'll look through this, look through uh, all the different elements and, and, you know, some of the things, you know, what a objective, uh, objective is and MRAD or MIA and all these sort of things, but talk about them in terms of what they do. And then, and then we'll get into section two, which is actually answering the question that everyone asks is what scope do I buy? Uh, because that's, uh, that's uh, very confusing. There are a lot of scopes, there's a lot of numbers and there's lots of uh, different meanings to what different things do and uh, that's going to come down there. And then if we get the chance, we're also going to bust into a few of the myths about scopes that are uh, all magical and uh, mostly wrong. 
So uh, we shall open the account on Scopes. Uh, how about we kick off with MRAD or MOA, Bronte? Do you want to uh, tackle part of that? What is the difference there and, and what are we talking about in those things? Well, they're basically just angular units of measurement. Mm. Um, yeah. Summed it up, move on. All right. Pretty much. <laughs> Yep. So what 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 are we doing with that angular unit units of measurements? Uh, one breaks um, a degree into I think it's sixtieth of a sixtieth for mm. MOA. Yeah. Oh, there's sixty MOA in a degree. Okay. So it's mm. a, yeah. Yep. Yep. So and then whereas your MRAD is um, breaking down a radian, so mm. a radian is I guess it's a mathematical. Equation. Equation that's relative to there's two there's two pi radians in a, a full revolution. Yep. And then it's breaking basically breaking that down mm. further. So I guess one of the myths we'll probably touch on later that there's a whole one's metric, one's imperial. It's all not true. <laughs> that is correct. But it is uh, some people find that useful as a reference to understand the variation where one one lines up with a metric denomination in oh, terms of division. Fits quite well, yes. Yeah, in, in terms of MRAD. But MOA doesn't fit directly with the imperial system, but uh, it is closer to the imperial system in terms of a measurement, and so that's where that, that sort of thought does. I mean, we can bust some myths now. It's all right. We, you know, we're not on a particular schedule. But uh, the, the the two questions are asked is, is MOA or MRAD. We'll get into the two the, the applications of both of those, but they're, they're two different measurement systems to achieve the, the same goal. Really? Uh, first focal plane or second focal plane are often referenced as FFP or SFP. Uh, anyone want to uh, go over that one? Paul, may as well. Yeah, okay. I mean, that just basically means that um, on your second focal plane, your reticle basically stays the same at any zoom range. Mm -hmm. And the first focal plane will change with your zoom rotation. So if you go on high magnification, your reticle will appear very large. Obviously, when you wind it back out, the reticle will be very, very small. Um, however, at each time, the increments on the reticle are always constant. So yeah. you can whatever you're reading is true at any at any range. Whereas a second focal plane, you have to we'll call it a sweet spot, which means the reticle is consistent at a particular range. Um, on a 22 power scope, it might be at 22 power. Yep. And then if you're at um, say 11 power, you know you've got to do the adjustments to suit. So. Mm. And so, yeah, because you said that the second focal plane doesn't change, but it doesn't appear to change in terms of visually it looks the same as you go through magnification. But, yeah, those hash marks are, are different meanings on second focal mm. plane. And that's where, you know, people, you know, people uh, running, running them on high power or, or in their maximum power or whatever their sweet spot is, it's no big deal. But as soon as you start changing off that, you've got an extra calculation to work out what that one line to the next line was 0.1 of a mil or 0.2 of a mil. And now it's something different. The factor of the magnification changed. So uh, second focal plane, first focal plane, um, we talk about application of those as well, but that, that's basically what happens. And it relates to, I mean, Dutch, you, you know this well, but it depends where the reticle is physically located in the, in the scope. That is correct. Yeah, whether or not it's in front or behind magnification. Yep. Good. Care to elaborate on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out no. Yeah. No, uh, it, it's um, te technically it's to do with where the radical setting in um, terms of the erector, if it's either in front, 
um, like closer to the eyepiece, that's a second focal plane. Mm-hmm. So your magnification, uh, magnification changes aren't going through the reticle, the image of the reticles before that. And then if it's in the first focal plane, it's after the erector. So any change of magnification will affect the um, apparent size of the reticle image. And, and so speaking of the erector, that's on to a, the next point is the internal adjustment, uh, which also um, plays as a trade-off often to magnification. But let's talk internal adjustment in terms of the erector. What is, what is that actually doing? Uh, when you're using your power change, the uh, distance between the lenses inside the erector is changing. So your um, the way the light is coming through is... Uh, sorry, you, I say light, but I mean image. The way the image is coming through as as well as light is um, changing. Mm-hmm. When you're changing the power change as these two lenses or there, there might be a, a series of lenses, um, the, rela- uh, the distance between them is changing. Yep. And then I guess in most uh, most current scopes is your erector is also the part that moves around as you adjust your turrets. So as you adjust your adjustment... It moves that erector around? Yes, uh, that is correct. There's usually a spring that holds uh, like a, a pretension mm-hmm. on the erector assembly. Um, and as you move your turrets, the uh, spring's forcing the erector to move um, how, however many uh, you know, mils or MOA or clicks or whatever you want to call it. Yep. You adjust on the turrets. So mm. that's one of the... Uh, Internal adjustments, there's a, there's a few more as far as um, parallax adjustment and if you've got an a, adjustable objective as well, that's mm-hmm. what, uh, where some of the other yep. uh, moving parts can, can you can encounter inside scopes, but a lot of modern scopes use the side focus or yep. um, parallax adjustment elsewhere. It's a lot of the older technology that's at the, at the front. Gotcha, gotcha. And so... Um, that, that's often done as a as an offset to magnification. So how much adjustment you have, um, often the higher magnification scopes in the equivalent sort of range have less adjustment internally than as they go up in magnification. Well, all, that also relates to body tube size as well, like mm-hmm. how much physical space there is inside. Mm-hmm. Um, can also affect your overall travel on, on your turrets. So, so a higher magnification that generally have a larger erector, therefore it doesn't move, can't move as far. Uh, not necessarily. Or is it just not because it's zoomed in so far? It it would start hitting this, like in terms of the the vision would start hitting the side of the scope. Yes, um, it it also relates with the relationship between the magnification and how much room you've got on your turret to actually move. Um, that uh, erector to match the the measurement you're trying to move to. Okay. In very very simple term, like I'm thinking in terms of like, well, the pitch of the thread is different, so it's moving the erector either more or less each click, because um, your your click value will be standard across a lot of models, yep. but the actual internal movement will be different, and that relates to the thread pitch of the turret with how much it's physically moving each turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is lower in the higher magnification. Okay. Okay. Mm. Like there's just less room um, at higher magnification relative to uh, the actual physical length of the scope. Yep. 
Does the sort of um, is there any direct correlation between the length of the erector tube inside and the the zoom range on the scope? You know, if you've got a, a scope, for example, the good old classic three to three to nine that have a three times um, magnification zoom factor from your maximum to your greatest versus you know some of your newer ones which are you know five six times is not uncommon. Yep. I don't actually know. I don't know, yeah. to be honest. You can say it, I know. Yeah, it's no, I don't. Nothing wrong with that. Because I'm just thinking if essentially, well, I mean, it's been a while since I studied lenses, but it's, it's all about essentially distance between lenses changing, yeah? So yes, if, yeah, if effectively. The distance this is the to get a greater zoom range, you need to make those lenses move further, further closer apart. apart, which means that bit that they move in needs to be longer, which mm. is then also going to limit but how, the, how the, far the shape and can diameter of the lens will also change the... Image coming through. Okay. Yes. So true. how that is being transferred so they can get, because um, like more modern scopes have higher magnification in a shorter mm. um, scope body. And that's the shape of the lens that affects that, doesn't it? Yes, mm. I would say so. I'm not mm. Yeah, 100% going to say yes or no. Well, but things have moved on since you've, you've done it, haven't they? They have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so magnification is another another big question uh, that you know, a lot of people sort of track down and they always think that more magnification for the longer ranges are always important. But um, And we'll get into some of the reasons as to why, but when we see all sort of factors in magnification. Bronte, you bring up like a three to nine has a three factor and uh, now um, you're talking about scopes that will do from four to 32, an eight factor of, of magnification. Um they're harder to make, which is why we haven't seen them earlier and talked about perhaps the, the lens shapes has been part of that and that, that technology has certainly moved on. So when you're talking magnification, I mean, are you suggesting that, you know, going up to like the 35 powers nowadays or the 32s? Mm. All right. So I guess from a, a seller's and a buyer's perspective or a user's perspective, um, the biggest thing that I've always found that magnification affects your field of view. Mm. That's mm. the first thing you've got to look at. It's a trade-off, isn't it? Yeah. And it also affects your eye box. Now... The more magnification you have, the harder it is to get a nice constant picture. You'll be yeah. messing around with your cheek weld. And if you don't have a good cheek weld, um, which I'm sure we're going to get into later, mm. um, you could be fluffing around so much that, you know, if you if you are hunting, you lose that ability to take that shot. Mm. You know, and then because you're at high magnification, yep. you've got a bad field of view. Yep. So you can't chase it because you've mm. lost it. So mm. there's, a, there's a big trade-off and I think that's where – you know, some people think oh, I'm shooting long range. I need a, you know, I need a, a lot of, um, a lot of magnification. It's not the case. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we've had instances at Kai Kai where we're shooting in a mile, and I was at 15 power. Yep. You know what I mean? And that's you would think that's a static target. Yeah. Yet, um, I had to go to 15 power A to see it clearly and B so I could use a reticle for part of the um, the shot. Mm. So it really is a fallacy that you need magnification. You know the target shooters; they they love it. Yep. Um, the F class guys, you know, but they're also they're also geared up around that as well. They're they're set to they're, they're not necessarily dialing back to a hundred and and they're really geared on that particular thing. And they're also on a very set range with with wind flags and other factors that they don't necessarily see, need to see through the scope. They can see it in other ways. Well, I guess Paul touched on another really valid point that mm. you know there's a, often a correlation between. Higher magnification and poorer image quality. You know, you mm -hmm. you start the lower magnification. It's easier from a scope manufacturers and imperfection of lenses and all these lovely things to get a really nice clear picture at say fifteen power. Yep. But if you want a really really nice clear picture at you know sixty power, yep, it's a heck of a lot harder to manufacture Chinking that. 
mm. and the cost. And even with some relatively high-end scopes, I looked at the other day, um, on, on Sunday, you know, at, at 25 to 30 parrots, you know, great. You start pushing beyond that and it starts to degrade. Yeah, absolutely. And you certainly see that. You see that on the cheaper scopes and get that, right. ask that question a bit, you know, guys pay 400 bucks for a decent scope and they say, oh, after a, it's an 18 power scope. And once they hit like 15, it starts getting a little bit milky. That's part of it. That's, I mean. Well, uh, e- even on um, really high end optics, they, they struggle with um, the light transmission on the really high power and your image can dull off, which yep. uh, gives the appearance of, of milkiness or like a clouded image. But it's also... Um, uh, related to how much light is actually passing through, and the image degrades with the with with a lower amount of light. Mm. It's not all. Um, it's not all of it. Yeah, that's not all of. It. There's many factors in there, and like lens quality is one of them, and then like the coatings as well, what colours they're picking up, um, also contribute to it. But a, a lot of the problem arises on high power from like lack of light, and the image darkens, yep. and becomes. Um, yeah, you have distortion. Mm. Um, I don't, I, that's on like, you know, 50, 60 power scopes yeah. where they're, you know, the um, uh, Paul mentioned it before, the, you, your eye box, you're, you're struggling to find that sweet spot to see the image because the image being transferred to you is so much smaller. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, they all re- relate to each other. Um, and that, Yeah, and that's another problem, like getting enough light and it's made worse shooting dawn dusk and if you're spotlighting as well mm. i don't know if that really applies to this yeah. discussion but you know Absolutely. if you're all aspects mate. all, all aspects, aspects so which probably always connects into the objective size because yeah. there's a oh, i don't know whether it's a myth or there's definitely some discussions and opinions regarding what the right size objective yeah is and there's correlations between that and magnification and, yep. and your exit people your your eyeballs yeah, I think just back on the magnification, yeah. um, Dutchie raised a good point because depending on the quality of the internals, you can actually twist your lenses inadvertently as well, which it impacts on your obviously the image that you're receiving mm-hmm. and it's the interpretation of your eye and any any kind when you get when you start magnification mag, magnifying that much, any small error along the way is you know excuse the pun, it's magnified. You know, obviously, <laughs> no. It makes it obviously makes it worse because I mean, you're looking at an image that can be distorted, yeah, or readily distorted, I should say. Definitely, definitely. And it, and and to go to follow on further of what Paul was just saying, um, when you're using your uh, your scope for long range shooting, sorry, um, yep. the the best uh, image is when the scope is optically centered. So when the um, all the lenses are lining up through the middle and the image is coming through the center of the objective. So when you're starting to go, if you've, you know, if you've zeroed it and you're right down um, with your elevation, so yep. you can, you can take those longer shots, you will have a lower quality image because the image isn't going through the center of the lenses. So mm. there's, there, there is just so many factors that can contribute to a poor image or image shadow when you're, um, really start testing optics and that's where uh, e- even high-end optics can, can fail when they're offering more than they can deliver. Mm-hmm. Like from, I, I don't want to say it's an optical law, but like 
It's give and take. I mean, yeah, it's, you, you've yeah. got to sacrifice something. So, yeah. I mean, and expanding on what um, Bronte was sort of suggesting again, I mean, yes, objective size does have, you know, something to play into it because it lets more light in. More light is a benefit because obviously a clearer picture. Um, yeah, something's got to give though, you know, mm. and, and a higher magnification, again, um, you lose the ability to um, have a higher amount of adjustment yep. in your scope which then means that if you're shooting long range and you're anticipating using that, you know, high power scope, um, you might be, you know, let's, let's say for argument's sake, running a 30 MOA rail on a 308 and you'll run out of elevation quicker mm-hmm. with the higher power scope. Yep. You know what I mean? It's, there's trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dutchie, you mentioned uh, lens coatings in there. And sort of picking colours and stuff like that. Um, lens coating is uh, something that many people don't even realise happens. They just think there's glass in there. What's uh, what's lens coating? I don't know specifically what they're made from. Um, if but I don't think that was the question you were asking. It's certainly not the question. No. You're okay. Oh, just it, just you know what what they're very briefly. Is. I think it's yeah. uh, it will like when they advertise it's a certain type of lens coating. It will affect. The, um, what do they call it, like the spectrum of colours that come through. So it yep. might pick up more colour on from, what are your three primary? Red, uh, yellow, blue and... Red, green. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's green. Blue. Yeah. Red, yes, green blue. anyway, it, it'll it'll pick up more... He's more of an artist. He likes to paint, so yellow is uh, more important. Yeah, well, that's the, the addition versus subtraction of primary colours. <laughs> of course, no, all aspects, no. Bronte. All aspects. He's got a high vis shirt on. I don't know what's. I don't know. Just feeling, feeling he's unsafe. Spot on, but, he's, but yeah, he's the, spot the, on. The, the coding will affect uh, what color will be transmitted more. So uh, an image might seem richer in color. Yep. Um, compared to a an optic with a different coding or no coding. Mm. Um, and I believe I don't. I'm happy to be corrected, but I yep. believe it relates to. Um, uh, not so much the image itself, but how the the colour of the image comes through. Mm. So uh, your greens might seem more vibrant with a higher encoding, um, and they determine that by whatever purpose the scope's going to be used. So if it's going to be used in in hunting scenario, I guess they want to be able to distinguish game from background. Mm. Uh, and yeah. at some level of the design, it's been determined that whatever yeah, um, particular colour. Is more favourable in a particular yeah, scenario. Yeah. The, the the gross generalisation I've heard and sort of seen is that the many of the European optics, which often have that bent towards sort of hunting, dusk at dawn sort of stuff, often will favour blues, and so they'll seem they pop more, particularly in, in dusk and dawn. Whereas many of the American optics are much more natural in their colour selection. Much more free. Yeah, much more freedom. Yeah. yeah, much more freedom. They pick uh, up freedom easily. <laughs> seed, seed freedom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but they, for sowing freedom seeds, you need. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> but they uh, they they favour that more natural colour, so they don't they don't pop one colour more than another. Um, now that's a, a gross generalisation and won't be true for all optics or all brands or all locations. But that's just a um, certainly a perception that has been held, and and I've seen that. Across those those sort of different country origins, not to say one can't do the other by any stretch of the imagination, because they they certainly can. 
It also gets down to your interpretation, like what your eye interprets as a, a good colour, a contrasting colour. Mm. And then you've got the brand interpretation. Some people think one brand is better than the other. Yeah, really? Yeah, which has nothing really? to do with Funny what it that. looks like. So, <laughs> Well, e- even yeah. on that further, your your own eyes will see colours differently. Your right yes. eye and your left eye will see colours differently. Yeah, okay. So there's that um, mm. point you brought up about interpretation is, huge. you know, yeah. it's huge. And if, yeah, I suppose that comes down to if you like something the way something looks, then that scope is right for you. Yeah. Yep. And I've just made a gross generalisation about country of origin, but that also doesn't play into it because many uh, the machines that make these things can can be put anywhere in the world and still make to whatever quality they're set to. Yeah, it's about so. what the coatings are made of, though. Cause the different yeah, um, elements that they use mm-hmm. in them. But the other aspect of guess, the coatings we haven't really touched on is the the other benefits from like an anti, anti-fogging. Um, yep. They also provide a bit of a harder shell so the lens is less likely to scratch. Yes. And yep. some of those other other aspects of coatings that yeah. are Absolutely. worthy of consideration depending on the application. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, th- I think you'd find differences in image between the same scope uh, same model from different, um, just like one compared to the other, even if it was exactly the same from the same manufacturer, just from the process of manufacturing and the the, the amount variance. of yeah slight yeah. variance, you you would see some. Oh, like scope to scope, you're talking. Yes. Yeah, I've noticed yeah, yeah. that because I've yeah. had a particular scope that everybody else's looks great and mine looked awful. <laughs> That's the Bronte factor. That's yeah, not the I just assumed it was what, me because I thought I must what have What did you do? Out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I swear this I only doesn't clean with, box. with gravel very well. Yeah, sandpaper didn't polish it <laughs> up at all. Oh, maybe I have to use something a bit finer than 60 grit. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. We've covered off on some stuff about lenses and such. Before you jump off lenses. I'm, I'm not jumping off. I've I'm got not. a bit of th- bit of a theory there. I'll go for it. I'm going to grab one of those drinks. So with, that, um, with the European sort of flavour that you were talking about before – they never used to be top end, as in magnification. Mm. They were always low power. So maybe that had more to do with it because the, we'll call them, you know, um, the non-European scopes or manufacturers were probably at a higher, other, other uh, at a higher zoom, you know, like more of the 20 than 25 power. Okay. Whereas the Europeans were still, you know, they were, they were very predominantly, you know, first focal plane, super clear, yep. but then, you know, They'd have a max. They'd max out at twelve power. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's a lot about the application because from a European, a lot of theirs are hunting based scopes. Where I mean, and also with their laws over there, are you can't use a spotlight. Oh, so but, but yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying. They depending window. on the country. They depending have, on the country. Yeah. What I'm getting at though is they have yeah, had to aim at that origin. market. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, why they're good at it. Yeah. And whereas you know the non-European, you know, <laughs> other yeah yeah. Have gone to a to their different flavour, like sure. a different end of the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably uh, very uh, very appropriate. Uh, turret styles. So we we commonly get people will reference the two styles of turrets as hunting and target. Um, perhaps otherwise known as exposed or capped. Um, any other words for those styles of turrets? Oh, tactical normally gets thrown tactical, around. Tactical, yeah, that's cool. And. Um, yeah, so I guess what we're, we're you 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 cover that off really with uh, many turrets are capped off, and you you have to take something off to then go in and adjust it. 
and that's the guns I grew up with and probably very similar for you guys where you uh, you never touch the scope on your uh, your gun. That certainly was a rule for me. You would never touch that scope. Zero, it's, and that's what you don't, zero, don't touch that's it. it. Or or it's shooting slightly right and to the and slightly high, and so you just aim a little bit low and a little bit left, and that's just yeah, don't yeah. ever touch Dad's guns in terms of the scopes, because it was a it was a black magic art, and uh, and yeah. no one knew how to actually zero a gun, and certainly that's what I grew up with and grew around, and and as I got to know guns and scopes better, I went. I'll stuff that for a joke. These are easy to, you know, you can actually, mm. you can make this work. Like you can point it at that and actually hit that by adjusting your scope. But, um, yeah, so a lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys go for hunting turrets because they don't want to touch them. And then a lot of guys go for target turrets because that's all what they want to do. They want to twiddle their knobs. And uh, I guess, strictly speaking, you can certainly hunt with a target-orientated scope and vice versa. Um but, uh, Brian, give us a little bit more on, on those two types of uh, scenarios and why you probably will call all your, all your t- uh, scopes hunting. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't discriminate against the roles that each of my firearms, they're, they're all, all get used. You're for. an equal opportunity shooter. Absolutely. It's whatever I've got ammo for gets used. <laughs> <laughs> That's normally the deciding factor. Sure. Um, uh, the, the target style, as we're referring to, of uh, the only gripe that often gets slandered, uh, you know, laid upon them is that, oh, well, if you bump the turret while you're in the car or something like that, you'll, you know, lose your zero and you'll miss and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, winded maybe, but, you know, I can't say I've ever had that happen to me. And yeah. if it does, it's not hard to check your... I've got these little numbers on there that yeah. you line up and you're all good again. Paul, you got any other sort of benefits for the hunting style? I mean, let's call them capped and exposed because that's, I mean, that's really all they are, the difference between them. Yeah, I think um, I'm a fan of capped windage turrets anyway as a standard, even if I had exposed turrets. Oh, he's, he's taken the uh, um, combination out. Yeah. Uh, the reasoning behind that is because your wind isn't constant and, you know, your elevation sort of would be in that instance. So mm-hmm. you should be really adjusting what you know. Um, yep. Hence, the windage can be capped. Yeah. I'd, yes, if I had to pick one to be capped, you'd, no brainer, then cap the window, but then... But then Bronte's going to hit me up and say, oh, but what about your different reticles? Because you haven't got a reticle that helps with a capped turret, then you're stuffed. So. Well, not even that, but what about when you're shooting extended ranges and... Um, yeah, you want a baseline. You want to so, – say that wind is – you know, you're looking at a 5 mil wind hold. Mm-hmm. It's a shitload easier to dial on, say, 4.5 mils or, or 5 mils. And play with that. And then play bit. with that 1 mil yeah, but if you're, either way. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Paul's get, defense get a, here. Get a locking yeah. windage turret. Yeah, if you're going to – It requires a button or something to be pressed before you can move it. If yeah, you're no to objection be, to that. But, you know, that, that ability to – I still I still muck around with my windage mm. turret on a semi-regular basis. The elevation gets used all the time. Yep. Windage gets used. We, we've, jumped, we've jumped ahead yeah. a little bit. So for, um, to, to bring it up, so you're talking about like a, it's generally an exposed turret and then the windage turret is usually somewhat of a very dialable turret that's got a cap on it as well. Yep. And so usually in that scenario, I'm guessing you've probably got plenty of time to make that shot because five miller wind, you're uh, yeah, you're taking yeah, plenty of time to make that shot. Yeah, yeah. So you not, would be able to take the cap off and, and adjust and, yeah. and play with it and then put it back on when you're done. Um, but 
I guess the exposed turrets uh, certainly do run that risk of of being bumped. Seen it happen. I've I've, I've experienced it, uh, but there are variants that will lock. So you mm. you, know, you may have to you pull the turret up and that one lock and push that turret down and that'll that'll lock it and therefore it can't be bumped. Um, so it, again, there's there's different variations within those types of exposed or capped turrets. One of the one of the benefits of a, of capped turrets, um, particularly sort of lower profile, is if you're trying to build a lighter weight gun and it's low profile, it's not going to snag on stuff. Whereas a lot of the exposed turrets are larger and, mm. and increased in size and more inclined to knock and bump and bits and pieces it, like that. It does relate to its intended purpose. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I believe when we started, we were talking about hunting. Oh, well, hunting and, yeah, and a cap turret, cap windage on a hunting rifle is... It's fine. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So Because I know you said you've never had a hunting trip ruined by a wandering turret, but I've had one go astray... And then brought it back to camp, re-zeroed it, and had it go astray. And it was by like twenty odd clicks. So we're talking like so, like almost a full revolution. Over a full revolution. Yeah. That's why I couldn't bring it back out yeah. in the field. We had to come back to camp, re-zero it, and in the end, I just chucked it in and used my backup rifle because it yeah. just kept moving. And that's <laughs> one thing that I think has probably changed in the scopes that we're using today yep. versus scopes we probably grew up with. Back in the day, it was actually quite possible to do a complete revolution out. Um, yep. But most, all of my sort of better scopes that I've used, the windage, you know, I think I've got 10 mils, you know, five each way or, or whatever it is. Yep. And I can't actually go a full revolution uh, out. So you've got to none stop of them, on them. None yeah. of them will go more than, you know, I dial it all the way one way. Oh, well, I can't get to zero. Obviously, I need to go all the way back the other way to get to zero. Yeah, and again, that'll probably be a higher power scope. Whereas if you've got a 12 power scope, you'll, you'll probably find that the internals will just a hell of a lot more than just five mils. Yeah. And, yeah. and you will find that um, depending on the model of scope you're talking about, you can machine that tab off and now you can get the you full can go amount further. of windage. Yeah, that that's you right. I mean, to. what my, my Steiner. Not advising that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just saying it's possible. Um, with a with a Steiner, you know, you, I think you've it's got a lot more um, windage adjustment than it lets you mm -hmm. access, mm -hmm. and it's oh, I think it's probably one of the better zero stops. So you basically undo the rub screws, turn it to zero, and that's your zero stop set. And the yep. same with the the um, elevation turret, and that's you know I think you got five and a half each way. Yeah, well, um, just before we get on to zero stops, because that's the next point, but the, the hunting side of things, going back and, and remembering the guns that I was using back, you know, dad's guns, uh, fair enough, not adjust, because the chances are that if I dialed that turret accordingly, um, probably wouldn't return to it where it's track. meant to. It wouldn't track as well, because it's probably a really cheap scope, and uh, I mean, it's on a pretty cheap gun. And so the the idea of not, not or the... The concept of not dialing your, your, not adjusting your scope is sensible, particularly if you hadn't spent decent money on a scope and it would, it would wander. It would wander if you did start playing with it. But also the distances that I know when I was younger, though, I wasn't shooting, you know, it was two, three hundred metres was a long shot yeah. back then. So, you know, a couple hundred metres, you just, oh, I'll just aim about a foot above its head and that'll be about right. We should be good. And yeah. we should be, should be pretty sweet. You know, mm. we, we would, at those distances, Enough to accurately dial is not perhaps quite as critical for most hunting applications. Yeah, well, the the 
increase in, in scopes and the ability to dial and, and do all those sort of things. Another problem was encountered, which you referenced before and not you referenced, is that you don't necessarily know which revolution you were on. So your ability to dial that, that dial around two or three or four or 20 times uh, for some of the older real-world scopes is uh, then you, when you wound back, you're having to count how many rotations you're doing and then if you got distracted and then you left it and packed it away and pulled it out again, you had no idea where your zero was going. And so uh, there was very many ways to deal with that with lines underneath so you'd know which line you're on but then you'd have to remember which line you're on which wasn't a super easy way to do it anyway. So the idea of a hard stop in there so you could wind your scope back with some sort of mechanism that it would lock down at a zero point that you designated. Okay, so on that, mm. so Schmidt and Bender brought out the, the PM2 like many, many years ago. Mm. I think probably even back in the 70s um, and they had a, an exposed turret on it. It was only a single rotation turret. However, when you zeroed it, it, um, it, was, it was caliber specific essentially and when you zeroed it, um, that was at 100 metres and then the next one's 200 metres, 300 metres, 400 metres. That essentially gave you the zero stop of sorts, obviously not. You know. Precursors. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know anything before that. <laughs> I just remember like, you know, when I was sort of dealing with scopes and whatnot and I do remember sort of coming across and I, I got, got um, very interested in, I guess, the military applications on things and, yep. you know, because it's really good to see how it evolved, you know what I mean, how they started off with a duplex reticle and then there are mill dots and then, you know, running mill dots, which is mill radian, but mm. then running MOA, you know, adjustments, yep. which is a complete <laughs> and utter no-no. <laughs> Thanks, Marines. Yeah. yeah. No, it's complete and utter, utter no-no now, yet, you know, I remember, oh, what, even up to seven or eight years ago, Schmidt and Bender were doing that. You know, you'd so, buy a Schmidt and Bender scope and then you'd have two different adjustments on it. Yeah. And it was just like, what the hell? These guys are top end. Not just up to seven years ago, mate. Yeah. I, I think you can no. saw a new one the other no, day you, that was like that. <laughs> whoever invented it, whatever the name they, they go by, the, the concept of a zero stop or a hard stop has been a, uh, a big sort of step forward to be able to just wind your scope back to zero. And, and what happened is a lot of that all come out with a zero stop and then uh, people would make it, well, you can this one you can dial two, two clicks under, then one you could dial four clicks under and then scopes you could dial five or six or seven clicks under um, for various reasons if you needed to. Uh, say, for example, if a particular Northern Territory match director put in a 90-degree cant shot um, and you needed to offset your adjustment, could be useful. But, I mean, who would do that? Who would do that? Anyway, so um, – and the other thing that sort of came along with them is uh, – and. Uh, Schmidt might have been one of the first ones to do this one, but that that indicator to show that you're on the second revolution or third revolution mm. of the scope was uh, was uh, you know another another real benefit, um, particularly if you were dialing up and down a fair bit. Uh, you got I, a giggle on, Paul? I, I just think I'm just thinking back, and I reckon that's when they went to the second turn in the turret. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because I think most a lot of the Schmidt Schmidt scopes early, earlier on in the piece were one single rotation. rotation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure we've all been caught by that. Uh, Never, never. Oh, oh, that's what a little thing sticking out the side means. Oh, oops. <laughs> I certainly remember it before that. We, we would the, the classic was we would be out at long range shooting during the day. Uh, and so go spotlighting, yeah, you, yeah. Do that and then you go and have dinner and uh, around the fire and then you jump on the back of the ute to go spotlighting and uh, you were still dialed out for 800 metres. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't go well on that Fox at 80. But, yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's all right. Definitely uh, scared it though. 
It was it was worried. <laughs> Jeez, what was that? <laughs> it was death. I'm out of here. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. So some of the other things that you find on scopes, uh, I know Dutchie's alluded to it several times, is the uh, parallax adjustment. Um, now that's either either in a uh, adjustable objective down the front on the bell, the scope on the objective end, and you adjust that. And what everyone thinks it does is brings it into focus, um, which is sort of side benefit of, of parallax adjustment, but it removes a parallax error. Um, trying to explain parallax error on a podcast is probably beyond my capabilities. I don't know. Come on, Dutchie. Give us some give us some insight into the technical workings of how it actually achieves that. Because essentially what you're trying to do is get the two image planes to line up. Yeah. It corrects so then, lenses, I believe, to, to make the image join. Because essentially, yeah, the issue parallax, the best way you can describe it, if you put one hand in front of the other. Right in front of the microphone. Yeah, good. From <laughs> left to right. <laughs> yes. Um, and... Your when you lean sort of. I right, say so everyone, everyone listening at home, do, do do this experiment. Put your hand up. So you put two hands in front of your face. Right, I'm like do this about well. say a foot away from your face and. How can six, it be a foot if it's your hand? Never mind. A foot away, a unit of measurement. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I'm um, more of a metric guy. You know, if you lean one way, yeah. Um, so you lean to the right. Keep your hands at the same place. Lean to the right. You can see more of your your back hand. Yep. Lean to your the left. Backhand. But if those were on the same plane, so that your hands move relative said to each other. to the other. left and you went to the right and I followed. Ah, oh, well, okay. <laughs> it's challenging. So then, but they're on the same plane. Yeah. The image stays exactly, exactly. the same relative yep. no matter where you move your head. And the two images we're worried about is what your target is and what your reticle's doing. Correct. And, and if you sit behind your scope and you wobble your head up and down a little bit, you'll see your reticle will bounce. Uh, even if the image is in focus, that can happen. And so you use your adjustable objective or your parallax adjustment to bring those into the into sort of a false same focal plane um, to get rid of that movement. And that's where mm. you can certainly, for guys who are not aware of that happening or with fixed parallax scopes, which is always a giggle, what you will see is it's a really good way to improve your group size really quickly because then you're actually shooting at the same point. Yeah. When you go to the longer ranges when you get essentially beyond that adjustment mm. i've found that was a huge difference between actually hitting absolutely nothing all day versus actually hitting something was to pull your head back and get that sort of equal scope shadow yep. shadow around the edge yep and then essentially you use that stuff like your cheek world a bit but yep. you kind of have to accommodate it but yep. that made big difference you know, your, your hit probability went up by 50 percent just purely based on actually aiming at the same spot, believe it or not. <laughs> so incredible, incredible. Mm. I mean, parallax is one of those ones that's hard to describe and we've uh, attempted it on a podcast, which is probably that's the sucked. least best mechanism to try it on, but we've uh, we've given it a go. There are certainly some good videos around with parallax and I'll try and link some stuff in the show notes uh, that you guys can go and check out some interesting on uh, interesting things on parallax. The other things that often aren't mentioned is the diopter, which is the, the, the closest part to your eye and there's an adjustment in that. What many people think that is is your focus, but it is not, is it, Paul? No. What so is it? it's basically um, your – it's to focus. It is a focus, but it's to focus the reticle, not the image. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah. and that's where a lot of people um, – if you ever see someone on the range and they're looking through a scope and they're adjusting the diopter consistently. Something's it, wrong. Yeah, it should be a set and forget type thing really. Um, if – and again, you know, if you know how to set up a scope or you, you, know, you, you know of someone that can do it, essentially um, the easiest way is to look at a, a, bl a very, very bland background. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you max out your zoom 
and you adjust your parallax to infinity, I believe, if you've got a yep. high power scope. Yep. And then um, you make the reticle as sharp as you can and as crisp as you can. Then you close your eyes for two seconds and open it up. And as soon as you open your eye, and you can sit, you keep doing it for a couple of, for a couple of times. Um, and what it should be is when you open your eye, it should be instantly sharp and crisp. Mm. And if it's not, it means you've, you know, because your your eyes, an amazing piece of kit mm-hmm. in its own right. Because it because it will <laughs> it. It, it will adjust itself. Yeah. you know what I mean. It changes shape. It's essentially mm-hmm. to you know to try and rectify the issue. Yeah, um, get it in focus. Correct, and that's you know it's just spend a bit of time. It might take you a couple of minutes. Mm. Um, it's worth it. Oh, 100 percent. Because if, if you're playing with that doctor on the range, I'm the first one to sort of pull you up and say, guys, do you need a hand and <laughs> I might tell you how to do this? Yeah. The, the problem with 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 that focus on that is this. So if, you're, if your reticle is out of focus, your eye, particularly with younger eyes or fresher eyes, will accommodate for it. But what's happening is it is not in focus and then you're trying to focus your target downrange as well. So your eye is literally changing shape to look downrange and focus that, back to your reticle and focus that, Downrange focus that, and you can see it if you have your, your reticle out of focus, and then you look at your reticle, it'll go sharp. But downrange gets fuzzy. Look at downrange, and it will it will do the reverse. What's that? What that is doing? You try to do that for a day, um, a couple of hours in, you will be you'll probably have a headache. In in sort of more extreme examples, I've mm. certainly been there. But if not, you have eye strain. Your eyes just sort of aching, and and it's not pleasant. Whereas if you get that diopter sorted out uh, at the beginning of the day, uh, you'll be out of be behind that gun uh, for for a fairly long time. So it's a big a big step to do it. And, and Paul, you, I think you're the way you suggested for the doctor is, is spot on. And what you you what you are looking when you close your eye and you open it up is your eye will accommodate. So it'll go from fuzzy for like a split second if you've got good eyes to sharp. And you'll you'll barely notice it, but if you're looking for it, you'll see it. Yeah. And you're trying to just remove that little time frame. And it, you know when when you start, especially in a hunting scenario, but when you start looking for targets. You don't want to be looking for your reticle. Mm. You know your reticle's secondary. You want to be looking at the target, and you're not trying to focus on the reticle. Your, your reticle should always be in focus. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. As soon as you've got that and you've you've actually worked it out and you've done it correctly, it's like an a wow moment. You know what I mean? Mm. It's um, mm. it'll improve your shooting for sure. Yeah. Oh, have, have you guys found um, some? Uh, we I've got one scope that is very very difficult to get that. Um, diopter set right, whereas other scopes, you know, quite easy. But that one particular scope, and it seems to be a fairly common thread with that make of scope. Yep. That getting that diopter is awfully finicky. Okay. It's got a locking ring on it, which is fantastic, because once it's set, you don't stuck around with it, and yep. anyone that touches it shouldn't run away <laughs> from my scope. <laughs> and what, what's which of your yeah, scope? Say, what one's this one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why I deliberately yeah. not said which one it was. Um, but cool. have you have you found that with you know a variation with difficulty in getting that set on certain scopes or? Um, I, I, me I, personally, I've, I've had yeah. one or two, um, yeah. and they're probably going to be different scopes to what you've had issues with. And I think it was just my eyes. You know oh, my I mean? eyes are pretty shagged as well. I really yeah, and it, it could be something as simple as that. I mean, some. Diopters don't have the range of focus that you need. Yeah, you know, yep. and then obviously you get in the whole glass issues. And you know, mm. I mean, I wear glasses now, and I'm a, I wear multifocals. That's a completely different ball game <laughs> and problem. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, you've got to take it on its own merit, I guess. But you know, on a personal level, um, 
I've had issues with some, some scopes, but other people haven't on yeah. the same scope. So okay. it's probably user error in your instance for sure. <laughs> I'll, it's probably just I'll broken. Rule that out. It's probably just broken. <laughs> it could, no, this is it the could only be broken. That I haven't been after break. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I've seen. I mean, because we used to run this on training course, and this was one of the early things we would do over the course of a, a day or a week. And uh, some guys would would nail it real quick, and some guys would take quite a long time, and it would be like the tiniest little adjustments. So I think s scopes can sort of be inherent to. Uh, being much like uh, more fussy with it, but generally those are the scopes that have a larger range of adjustment, and so like a a, a quarter of a turn is too much. Yeah. So yep. a tenth of a turn is is the adjustments you're looking for. Mm. Yeah. And so it can be it, it can be a bit of a process, but as as Paul said, if you need to take a couple minutes, but even ten or fifteen, oh, once you <laughs> twenty, you, once you lock it down, oh, now it's set. Particularly lock ring, you, you're done and dusted, and don't mm. ever let anyone change it. The yeah. thing is, though, I mean, and it may even be something as simple as don't do it yourself. Have someone else at the range so that you're not having to change your, your you know, your location and your eye and your position. Mm. You know, you just close your eye and open it and you get someone on the range to, you know. To adjust on the knobs. And, and then they can, you know, you can <laughs> who's going to offer to play with your knobs? But anyway, <laughs> let's not go there. Right. Move on. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. Yeah, excellent. Now, one thing that got brought up before, um, which is often a, a cause of confusion, uh, is a 20 MOA or a 30 MOA rail. And so we, we see this uh, terminology bantered about, and those who know what it is will, will be very familiar with it. But a, uh, a 20 MOA rail, Bronte, what, what, how is that useful? It enables you to use more of your available travel by essentially putting a, a cant so your scopes um, has a, a bias put in it. Mm -hmm. originally yep. so instead of when you zero your scope instead of that erector tube being essentially near to the zero of your available travel yep it's um towards the bottom of your available travel which gives you more room to go up basically yep so you can instead of having a, a scope say with 26 mil that you burning 13 mil of that to get to zero mm -hmm. you now get yourself an extra um six mil or nine mil or whatever it is to play with yeah so yeah. you, know, you can instead of being able to dial up thirteen mil, you can now dial up you know twenty something. Yeah, and and one of the questions I often get asked is uh, twenty MOA rail. Well, I need one for mil, Paul. Um, look, I think the first point of contention on this will yep. be what are you doing? All right. So the one thing I always used to say to people is you know exactly what it, what is it used for? I mean, if you're going to shoot at three hundred meters, you don't need a twenty MOA rail. You know, if you want something you can grow into, by all means, you know, that's something you need to look at. Yep. Um, from what Dutch you were saying before, the sweet spot for the scope is obviously obviously centre of the erector tube. Yep. Um, now, it is worth noting that um, the 20 MOA rail, it brings you down slightly. However, mm -hmm. you know, some might choose to go to a 40 MOA, MOA rail and zero it at, you know, 150 to 200 metres rather than 100. Yep. And again... You know, you don't want to be on the bottom of the erector tube because mm -hmm. if you bottom it out, and it's probably a good thing to do um, as a um, as a bit of a test, I guess, to see what it does, is you'll actually, when you've got your eye through there and you max out or you bottom out on your erector tube, you'll see the ereticals skew off really quickly. Yeah. Right yeah. at the end. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you'll you'll be going, oh, wow, what's going on here? My scope's broken. Well, no, you've just twisted the tube and it's, it's it, you know, it's at its maximum adjustment or it's minimum adjustment, yep. you, know, you need to get off that mm -hmm. and then put some positive tension back into it. Um, so you can't go 
too low. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Dutch used to fix scope, so he'd want you in the middle, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that that if you're offsiding by, say, 20 mOA, away, and my, my question to you was if someone's uh, needing 20 mOA, away, what's, they, they, they need a mills, mill setup and it's a 20 mOA rail. It's – you could just convert the MOA into mills. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's just a candle. It's, it's not a can it's it's not a it's a constant. So it's not as if you've got to add it to your equation when you when you're working at your elevation. Yep. It's for the initial setup of the scope. Yep. Um, it's about you, six mil. Yeah, yeah six six yeah. something. Um, but back onto the other one, if you're if you're constantly shooting or often shooting further, if you drop 20, 20 MOA or six mil, chances are a lot of your shots are going to be taken back towards the center point because mm. if you're shooting three, four, five, six. 700 meters, you, you're working more, much more in that center point. Uh, uh, otherwise, you're not. You probably, I mean, unless unless your name's Paul, you're probably not shooting 100 meters the whole time. So that would be. Uh, it's only the start of the day. Come on. <laughs> well, also, to to yeah. further clarify on what I said before about um, image being worse near the it's it's near the extremities. So if yeah. your scope has a lot of travel and you put a 20 MOA rail on it, mm-hmm. probably not going to notice any like lower image quality. Yep. If you put a 40 on it and you're getting closer down um, to the limits of your, your your travel, you may notice uh, differences in your image. Yeah. But like a, a 20 MOA rail on a lot of modern scopes isn't using a lot of their travel. Mm. Probably won't see um, yeah, well, a, all a, 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 a loss of image quality. Whereas if you went a 40 or further and, and you're down around those extremities of travel on your turret, you probably are going to see mm. uh, a loss of image quality when you're at your zero. Yeah, and, and that's one um, one thing. So, like, if you use the example of a scope that's got 100 minutes of travel, which is not, not uncommon, that's not 100 minutes from zero. That's 100 minutes all up. So, you're, you know, if you put that scope on, it's going to be approximately – ballpark of 50, 50 MOA up and 50 MOA down. Now you, you you go 5 MOA either side to zero that thing, but um, so the 20 offsets that. So you've still got – you're still 30 MOA from the bottom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, with my sort of competition gun, I've got a 40-something MOA spur mount yep. on that. And I do – notice like the tiniest little bit of loss of clarity. You know, if I dial it up even two or three mils, it is fractionally, fractionally clearer. Okay. So yeah, but you're probably 40 MI, you're probably pushing it right down towards, um, the, trying to, towards well, the bottom. You know, yeah. I, want, I want to get as much yeah. usable elevation because I can shoot and, that rifle and, out to the... How often would you shoot 100 metres in a comp? Uh, pretty pretty rare, unless Paul's the match director. <laughs> <laughs> Hammered tonight. Uh. <laughs> well, guys, that's uh, unless there's anything particular, that's uh, that's section one done, which is really the uh, the what it all means, and hopefully we've clarified a few terms for you and bits and pieces. But all that information is pretty incomplete without. Well, what do you do with that? How do you apply that to your scenario and deciding which scope to buy? So we shall be back in the next episode for that. And uh, anyway, we will uh, we'll get out of here quickly so we can press record again and do it again. All right. Cheers for listening. Yeet. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Impact Dynamics.